during uh, our first couple years of marriage, uh, one of the big struggles that my wife Rika and I uh, dealt with looked something like this. Uh, she would get hit, perhaps, by an insecure thought. And then she would share that with me. And then I would snap back uh, that there's nothing to be insecure about. And then she would share with me how my response to that didn't feel very comforting or that I, was, you know, I wasn't very sensitive. To which my response was typically, well, if we didn't have insecure thoughts floating around, I wouldn't have to worry about it, right? And uh, this is how we typically went round and round. And at the end of those spicy conversations, let's just call them, um, we usually both felt at the end of those frustrated and hurt. And so we had been doing that for a while. And after one of those conversations, I reached out to uh, one of my mentors, Ken, and uh, just sat down with him and unpacked what was going on. And as he listened, he said, you know, Chad, it, it just sounds like you're not being very sensitive to her. <laughs> and I was like, really? You think so? And I just received it from him. I didn't push back at all. And Rika's going like, I've been telling you that, right? Like, doesn't that drive you nuts how you can look at your spouse, your kids, your parents, your family, your friends, you can give them good advice, you can give them wise counsel, you can give them warnings, like you're talking to them and they absolutely dismiss you, but then someone else will verbatim say what you said and that person's brilliant. And you're like, I've been telling you that. Why do we do that? And some of you like, stop poking the person next to you. I know, I know you're out there, right? Why do we do that to each other? Well, here's a couple reasons why. One is, that person's just too familiar. They're too familiar. We're, we're, we know their point of view. Um, we, we know where they're coming from. And so we just kind of put them in a box, and we, we just easily dismiss what they're trying to say because we're just really familiar with them, and we don't really take it that serious. The second reason is because of pride. It's because of pride. Now, whether it's conscious, subconscious, spoken, not spoken, there's just something in us that doesn't like to be criticized. And we either think we're smarter or we're older and wiser, or we're younger and savvy, or whatever reason, there's something inside of us that pushes back. And so familiarity and pride like close our receptivity to the people sometimes closest to us. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying we've all experienced that, right? We, we, we've all experienced this dynamic. And guess what? So did Jesus. Jesus experienced this very dynamic as well. Uh, there are two barriers that lead people to reject Jesus. When, when you at some point, whatever, at whatever point in your life, you become aware of God's love for you and that his love led him to come in the flesh, die on the cross for your sins, and raise from the grave, and you become familiar with Jesus, at that point in time, you either reject him, you just see a man, or you receive him because you realize he's Savior. But two of these barriers that we're talking about will usually lead people to reject Jesus instead of receiving him. They're either too familiar with Jesus or they're too prideful for Jesus. They're just too familiar with Jesus to really see him for who he is or they're too prideful. They don't see their own need for Jesus. And today, as we continue to look at Jesus, who was both God and man, he was fully divine, God in the flesh, yet at the same time, fully man, flesh and bones, sympathetic to our human experience, we're going to see how Jesus, at the very beginning of his teaching, preaching, and healing ministry, heads to his hometown. He goes back to where he was raised, Nazareth. And as he teaches there, this is his first time showing up as a teacher, let me ask you, do you think he's received or do you think he's rejected? He's rejected, absolutely. Why? They're too familiar with him 
and they're too prideful for him. And so that's where we're going to be today. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're in the Bible book of Luke, chapter 4, and we're going to be spending an extended amount of time in Luke over the next year and a half or so. We'll just be diving in and out of Luke as really a, a, a way to walk closer with Christ and look at this man Jesus and what he did and what he said and to know who he was as God and man and to grow closer in our relationships with him. Now, as you're turning to Luke 4, I'm just putting a, a very fast recap of where we, what we've seen the last couple weeks. Up to this point, Jesus had John the Baptist baptize him in the Jordan River, kicking off his you know, ministry. And then last week we looked at Jesus was in the wilderness, uh, tempted by the devil. And now he's returned from the wilderness to the region of Galilee, and he's in the full-time rabbi mode. He is now teaching around the area of Galilee. There's this uh, phenomenal view of the Sea of Galilee from this mountain called Mount Arbel. It overlooks Galilee. And from the top of the mountain, you kind of get a view of Galilee. Several times today, I'm going to show you pictures because we, we need to envision uh, these moments. These are real moments that really happen. And so envision Jesus, you know, going around the coast of Galilee to villages um, all over the area, preaching and teaching and healing. And so we see the outcome of that when we look at four, uh, Luke 4, Verse 14 and 15, it says, Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus is out there teaching, and people are receiving it well so far. Now he comes to his hometown of Nazareth. It's a village on the southwest hills of the region of Galilee. And uh, some of you are thinking, well, why is he in Nazareth? Wasn't he born in Bethlehem? Yes, if we look at our history, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But King Herod uh, was trying to harm all the boys two years and younger because he heard that there was this king coming. And so uh, God had Mary and Joseph flee with Jesus to Egypt uh, until King Herod died. And when King Herod died, they came back into Israel and they moved to Nazareth. This is where Jesus grew up. Now Jesus is showing up to Nazareth again after he's been out you know, basically getting ready for his ministry. And uh, he's going to church. He's going to show up to the synagogue, the Jewish house of worship. So let's just kind of get a visual of what that's like. Uh, this is a picture of modern Nazareth. Like if you go to Nazareth today, this is Nazareth all over the hills there in Israel, right? And there's this one cool location in Nazareth. They call it the Nazareth Village. And what they've done is they took a section of land that was pretty well preserved, and they basically built what would look like a village in the days of Christ. And so this is kind of more what we envision when we think of Nazareth, not the big, you know, cities. And so you can go, it's kind of an open-air museum. They've done some recreation and reenactment stuff there, and so you can walk through. And there's this one spot in the Nazareth Village that's a replica of a synagogue that would have been found in those times. And so this is what that synagogue looks like there in the Nazareth Village. And if you walk into it, this is what you would find. It's a room, there's seating on three sides, and the people would sit on those, you know, bleacher uh, seats there. And then uh, the, the Jake, the clay jars would hold scrolls of, you know, the Old Testament law, the Testament prophets, Psalms, things along those lines. That's their scriptures. And, um, and then someone would come out and read and do their thing. So this, this is a, a picture I want you to get. Envision a room like that where Jesus shows up and arrives in Nazareth. Let's pick it up. Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and this is a quote from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So as we recap this moment, it's very helpful to kind of see what the typical service um, looked like in a Jewish synagogue. And so first people would arrive and get in there, and they would start with something called the Shema, which means here. And so uh, in Hebrew they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then they would have kind of a prayer, and then there would be a reading from the book of Psalms. And then there'd be another prayer, some blessings. And then there would be a reading from Old Testament law. So they would get out some book between Genesis and Deuteronomy and read from that. And there'd be some more prayer blessings. And then they would get out a scroll from the book of one of the prophets. And someone would read from the prophets. And then after that, give an application, an interpretation, basically a little sermon, right? About what, these, this, what this means. And then there'd be some more prayers and blessings and moving on. So Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth, in his hometown. They're moving through the service order. They get to where they're going to read from the book of the prophets. And it was uh, a custom at the time, if they had a visiting rabbi, which Jesus was at this point, they would let that person have the honor of reading and teaching. And so Jesus is in the middle of the service, and the attendant hands him his scroll, right? And uh, this, this was their Bible at the time. So not like the Bible you're holding, not like the app, like, you know, you don't press this and it just opens, right? You actually have to physically open it. And, um, and uh, Jesus opens up to the book of Isaiah. Now here's what I love, okay? Two options happen here. Either Jesus entered into the synagogue, and when this moment happened, he said, yeah, yeah, why don't you go and hand me the scroll of Isaiah? I'd like to read from that one. Or the other option is they had kind of a rhythm of the scrolls that they would read from the prophets. And that Jesus just so happened to show up on Nazareth uh, coincidentally on the day that they were going to read from, oh, I don't know, Isaiah. And he just happened to open it up to read Isaiah 61. Well, you can kind of tell which view I favor, okay? I think this was, this was what was coming. And Jesus opened up the scroll of Isaiah, found 61, and started reading from Isaiah 61, which is a passage of Scripture that would be near and dear to the Jewish people. This is an oppressed people. They've had generations and generations of countries that have enslaved them, that have persecuted them, that have oppressed them. The, the, the heartbeat of the Jewish people is Messiah come. This, there's this person, there's this Messiah, there's this Christ, there's the Savior, there's this Redeemer, there's this Deliverer that one day is going to show up and help us. And Isaiah 61 is like the job description of the coming Messiah. And so Jesus reads from the scroll. And he talks about the one who's going to come, who's anointed to preach good news to the poor who's going to open up the eyes of the blind and free the captives. And then he hands the scroll back to the attendant. And what he does is he sits down, right? This is the, the traditional way that the rabbis would teach. They'd sit down to get ready to teach. That's why it says here, all eyes were on him. 
It wasn't like, hey, he's a good-looking dude. Let's just stare at him. You know, it's like all eyes are waiting. It'd be like if I just stood up here and I said, open your Bibles. And then I just sat here for a minute. You're like, all right, let's get on with it, buddy. Come on, you know? And so he's sitting, ready to teach, ready for the application. Look what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Help me out. What was he saying? What was he saying? I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm here. This passage I just read from the scroll is being fulfilled in your very presence. This is what's happening in this moment. Well, how did they respond? Well, let's just try to emotionally connect with that moment. How would you respond if I invited a guest speaker up today and said, hey, brother so-and-so is going to come share the word. And so brother so-and-so comes up here and opens up the Bible and maybe teaches from John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world, they sent his one and only son. And then he closes up the book and goes, just so you know, I'm God's son. I'm the Savior. I can forgive you of your sins. What will we do? We'd be like, security, you know? And <laughs> brother so-and-so would be ushered out the door pretty quickly and either off to some room with lots of padded walls or something. I don't know. We wouldn't take it very well. Well, what happened here? Look at verse 22 again. It says, they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, is not this Joseph's son? They were impressed at the ability of Jesus to teach and his authority, and they were amazed by Jesus. But amazement doesn't mean belief. Amazement doesn't mean belief. Because here's what also was going on. They were trying to reconcile like their brain is flipping breakers everywhere because they're going, this is amazing what we just heard. Uh, we can't really believe it. And isn't this like Joseph's boy? Isn't this little baby Jesus? And so they have a hard time reconciling what they just heard with what they know about Jesus. This is Mary and Joseph's son. This is the little boy that ran around the village with my kids. This is that teenager in the village that kind of hung out with the village duties. This is the young man that maybe a couple years ago built the house um, that you're living in or built the front door or made the table that's in your house. This is the carpenter's boy. So they're having a hard time reconciling here. There would have been no confusion that day among the Jewish audience that Jesus was clearly saying that the Isaiah 61 prophecy was being fulfilled by him and that they were witnesses to it. Think about this. God in the flesh stood right in front of them They've been hearing rumors of him, rumors of what he was doing and healing in other villages, but they only saw a man who once lived there. They had this barrier to the belief. What was the barrier? They were too familiar with Jesus to see him for who he really was. They were just too familiar with him. Familiarity led to contempt. This is Jesus. This is the carpenter's son, not the Messiah. And because they already thought they knew him, they had come to their conclusion, and Jesus was not about to change their minds no matter what. And so here's what happens. As you look at this passage, Jesus didn't really take a breath. He just kept talking. Why? Because he knew what was in their heart. Scripture talks about that. Jesus knew the minds and the hearts of people as God in the flesh. He knew what their next request was going to be. He knew exactly what was about to come. He said, wait a minute, Jesus, we've been hearing about what you've been doing all around Galilee. We heard what you did at Capernaum. We heard about these healings and all this stuff like that. Look, you're now in your hometown. This is your hometown. We, we ate with you. We hung out with you. We did community together. So if you're going to go do those things there, you're definitely going to do them here, right? You're home now. So let's get the circus going. Let's get some sick people. Let's get some blind people. Let's get some people here. Let's get this thing fired up. Because really, honestly, we need to see this to truly believe what you're saying. He knew that's what was in their heart. 
And so he just hit it off at the pass. Look at verse 23. He just kept going. He said, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, physician, heal yourself is not a Bible proverb. It's not, you're not, some people, some of you going like, I can't find this in Proverbs. You know, it's not there. This was some probably proverb of the day in Jewish culture. But the basic meaning of the proverb is twofold. It means prove it. It also means do it here. So, oh, you, you, you got miracles? That's great. Prove it. Do it here. But he wasn't about to entertain them. And he was letting them know that he, as a person of God, was not to be well-received at home. A prophet's not welcome in his hometown. Why? Because they're too familiar with him. They're just too familiar with him. Some of you have experienced this very thing, right? Like, I don't know when you came to Christ, whether you were young, a teenager, an adult, last week, last year, whatever. But some of you have come to Christ, and, and God is changing you. Like he, he's transitioning you from this, this, this person you were to the person he's making you become. But you've got family, and you've got friends, you've got people in close proximity of you that they're not buying it. They're not really on board. They're attacking it. They're, they're mocking it. They're criticizing it. They're ignoring it. Oh, it's just a phase you're going through. Or they just keep tying you back to your old self. Like, I've got this one friend. He just has to drop the remember when bombs. Like, oh, yeah, remember when you did that stupid stuff with me? Or remember how bad you were? I'm like, seriously, bro, I don't celebrate that old Chad. I have new life in Christ, okay? And so some people are so familiar with you that they haven't taken God's work in your life serious. It shows that they're underestimating the power of Christ to bring newness. And so they've tethered you in their minds to the old you, the old self, the old behaviors. They know you're dirt. They can't see beyond that. They got you in a box. They're too familiar with you. But don't get discouraged by that because Christ is giving you new life. So here's the thing. You, you, the familiarity can lead you to reject Jesus, but he's still Savior whether you reject him or receive him. Our reaction doesn't determine his identity. His identity is fixed. Jesus is Savior, whether we uh, accept to believe it or not, whether we are too familiar with him or not. And so this is what's happening in this moment. You know, God uh, spoke about this in another way through the Apostle John. In John 1, he said this. He said, the true light, this is a reference to Christ, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not, what? Know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not, what? Receive him. The world didn't know him or receive him. Israel didn't know him or receive him. Nazareth didn't know him or receive him. Why? They had this barrier of familiarity. They were just too familiar with Jesus to see him for he is. Let me talk to my brothers and sisters in Christ for a minute. If you're a Christian and you're just kind of in a stuck spot in your walk with Christ, is it possible the reason that you're not seeing God's power in your life, you're not experiencing the joy of Christ in your life, is because you've become too familiar with Jesus. You've been to church so many times, you've lost track. The Bible is just old book, you know, you know, I've read that passage before. Your prayers just feel like they're, I just, I prayed this a thousand times. This is the same prayer. I'm just stuck on autopilot, you know, like all this stuff. You've become too familiar with Jesus. Look, you've got to fight to let 
vitality of your faith continue to flow in your life. You gotta fight for that time in the word. You gotta fight in prayer. You gotta fight to be in Christian community. All the, the devil, the devil's plan is so simple. I'm just gonna pluck you out of community and sit you over here and watch you rot. That's the devil's plan for you, by the way. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna remove you from community. I'm gonna put you in isolation, convince you it's good somehow, and then watch you just unravel. Why? It's all familiar. Been there, done that. And so as believers in Christ, we've got to fight to keep our faith fresh, our relationship with Jesus alive. And if you're sitting here, if you're watching online and you don't know Christ, don't let your familiarity with Jesus be an obstacle. This God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for you. He wants to spend forever with you. He wants to forgive you of your sins and give you new life. Don't let the fact that whether you've been to church all your life or you've heard the name of Jesus a thousand times or whether you even know Bible stories or whether you've heard his name used as a cuss word all your life or whether you've read documentaries and articles and watched shows about him, don't let what you think you know about Jesus stop you from seeing him for who he really is. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Savior whether you receive him or reject him. Let me encourage you, receive him. Don't reject him. But familiarity is not the only obstacle. We've got to deal with this pride issue. The second barrier to people rejecting Christ is they can't see their own need for him because they're prideful. And that's where Jesus goes next. Let's look again at Luke 4, Luke 4.25. Jesus now tells a couple stories. He says, but in truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. This is an Old Testament prophet. He's speaking about hundreds of years before. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What's Jesus talking about here? Like, where are we going here? It's a history lesson with a very, very sharp point. It's as if Jesus is saying, why we're on the topic of unwelcomed prophets, let me talk about two of them. And so he goes back to Elijah and Elisha. And he uses two historical stories from the life of Israel to give an example of humility and faith for people outside of Israel that during a time when Israel didn't have faith, these people did. And so these are examples where humility led to belief and a miraculous blessing. The first one is this widow of Zarephath. You can read about this in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. And so you have this Old Testament prophet, Elijah. And he was a prophet during the time of King Ahab. King Ahab was one of the most evil kings in Israel. He, he just took the nation and just swung it as far as he could away from God. A, a hideous leader and a man. And so at that time, Israel wasn't walking with the Lord, and there was this great famine in the land. Well, God did not send Elijah into Israel to do something. Instead, he sent him outside the boundaries. He sent him to Zarephath. This is like the northwest coast of Lebanon. This is far away to a non-Jew, to a Gentile widow. And when you look at that story in 1 Kings 17, here's this widow. She's going to die. There's a famine. Her son's going to die. There's a famine. And God sends Elijah to this Gentile woman because he knows that she's going to be receptive. And she receives Elijah into her home. And Elijah's like, hey, man, what's for dinner? She's like, well, I got a little tiny bit of flour and a little tiny bit of oil. That's it. 
But while Elijah stayed with this woman, they never ran out. She was able to make bread and make bread and make bread. You know, she was like Panera on you know, the stairway. Like, brother, here we go. They didn't run out. God was just blessing them with a miracle. Well, something did happen to his, her son. I don't know if it was, you know, sickness, disease. Her son dies. Elijah prays for him. He comes back to life. These were miracles done for this Gentile widow way out here, but nothing was done for the Israeli widows. Why? Because they weren't walking with God. And they reject, they would reject the prophet, but this one received the prophet. And so this was a clear lesson about God's love for all people and that God's going to work where people are going to welcome the work. Also, you see here the story of Naaman, the Syrian leper. This is found in 2 Corinthians 5. Now we've got the prophet Elisha. Don't be confused, Elisha and Elijah, right? You got like j and sh, you know, overemphasize those. But Elisha is the successor to Elisha. And he healed a pagan Gentile enemy commander of the Syrian army. This is like the equivalent of a terrorist, right? The, Syria, the Syrians always attacked Israel. And so he healed them from leprosy by having them dip in the Jordan River. Now there was a lot of people with leprosy in Israel at the time, but God sent Elisha to someone outside of Israel. Why? Due to their rejection of the Lord and his prophets and because God was demonstrating his love for all people. And so the widow and Naaman are both examples of faith where Israel had no faith. Both were examples of God dealing more graciously to believing Gentiles than unbelieving Jews. Both were examples of people who humbly saw their need and embraced God's servant. In contrast to the spiritually prideful who did not see their need for the Lord and resisted and rejected God's servants. And so as Jesus is telling these stories, this is an indictment of unbelief against Nazareth. He's basically saying, just as your forefathers rejected Elisha and Elisha, you're going to reject me. And just like Elijah and Elisha go somewhere else to do the great work, I'm going to go somewhere else to do the great work because you won't have it here. You're too familiar with me. You're too prideful. You don't need me. I'm going to go somewhere else. Now, obviously, that made the people of Nazareth very angry that he would compare himself to these Old Testament hero prophets and compare them to this rebellious nation of their forefathers. They were just too prideful to see their need for Jesus. I saw this uh, quote in a book and study. It's by another pastor named John MacArthur. I'm like, I'm just going to use this because I don't want to mess with it. It's just, I think it's just very articulate. He says, rather than acknowledge their spiritual poverty, sinful bondage, blindness, and oppression and need of a Savior, the Isaiah 61 language, they questioned whether Jesus was really the Messiah. Unless his hearers were willing to humble themselves like the outcast Gentile widow and that Syrian leper terrorist did and admit their spiritual need, they could not be saved. That was too much for their nationalistic pride and self-righteousness to bear. See, salvation for all people, for the Jews at the time, was distasteful in their mind. And here's God doing this great work to these unbelievers, and they're feeling overlooked. Think about it this way. Who in your mind would you struggle with if the Lord did a work in their life? Like they got saved, Man, they got blessed. Maybe God did a miracle. Like who is someone that you would internally just really struggle with because of some of your presuppositions or views? Would it be a terrorist that's killed hundreds of innocent people? 
What if God just saved that person, radically saved them, and just um, did a transformation in their life? If you're struggling with that, by the way, you might want to think of a man named Paul. Just kind of just saying, okay? What about a murderer in prison? What if you're a conservative? Would it be those blue, compromising, left-leaning liberals? Or if you're a liberal, would it be those red, stiffy, unyielding conservatives? If you're pro-life, would it be the fierce pro-choice activist? If you're heterosexual, would it be the homosexual? Would it be the Warriors fans and the Michigan fans and the Steeler fans? Like, you know, honestly, like, where would you have difficulty in seeing God show up and do something amazing in someone else's life, feeling like God passed you over? Now can you emotionally understand what was going on in this room? This is what was going on in this room. But the point of Christ was to reveal their pride. It was to reveal the hardness of their heart that prevented belief. It's so sad that pride of these people wouldn't allow themselves to see their own sin, their own spiritual poverty, their own spiritual blindness, their own need for a Savior. Not much has changed, has it? Because we can be the same way. You know, some of you won't humble yourself to see your need for Christ. You are just too busy pointing your fingers at everybody else's flaws. Like, can I just be really honest with you? It's one of the lamest arguments I've ever heard. I don't need Jesus because look at that person over there. I don't need Christ because of what that person's a hypocrite. That person's a mess. That person says this and does that. So I'm going to reject Jesus because that person. So you focus on the messenger who's definitely broken, but you miss the message, which is perfect and true. And so our pride allows us to do that. We're too busy pointing fingers at the mistakes of others. Or maybe you're building a platform so high so that you can look down on others. Or maybe you think of yourself as too spiritual or too intellectual. Or you just see yourself as a self-made person, the God of your own life. And you just won't humbly bow to the God who made you and who loves you and came to die on a cross so that you can be forgiven of your sins. See, our pride, man, it's ugly. And it's in direct opposition to God's work. Multiple times in Scripture, God basically says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the who? Humble. Would you say that with me? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Anyone else feel like they're prideful at times? <laughs> and pride's a killer. And in this case, it sparked a rage that literally wanted to kill Christ. I mean, with the wounding of their national pride, and their spiritual pride, those in Nazareth now wanted Jesus dead. Oh, we like him. He's great. He's wonderful. Let's kill him. It's amazing how fast the truth can wear out your welcome, isn't it? Let's look what happens next. Luke 4, 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It is truly amazing how fast the truth can wear out your welcome. When you tell people what they want to hear, they're going to be a fan of you. But the second you try to tell them loving, bold truth, biblical truth, now you're the enemy. Now you're the enemy. It's amazing how this can flip so easy because it provokes the pride. And at this point, the Nazarenes felt the freedom to kill Jesus because they saw him as a local boy who grew into an articulate but bogus rabbi and a false prophet. They did not see a savior. They saw a blasphemous man deserving of death. So this angry mob forms. 
And they pushed Jesus out of the synagogue toward a hill that uh, Nazareth is on. Now, we don't know exactly where this happened, but there is a traditional site that does fit the description. It's called Mount Precipice for a reason. It's the precipice over the hill. It sits at about 1,300 feet above sea level. And if you go to Mount Precipice and you go to the very edge and look down, this is me on the top of Mount Precipice looking down, that's how high up you are. That little tiny strip of black down there is the freeway. You can barely see the cars. It's 1,300 feet high in the air. If you look at it sideways, you get a look of how the rocks and the cracks, if you wanted to kill someone, this would do it. And this is just on the outside of Nazareth. And so tradition says this might have been the spot that they took Jesus to. But as you see here, God miraculously removed Jesus from the situation. We don't know how that happened. We don't know if, like, you know, they got distracted or he blinded them or just filled with courage in the spirit. He just pushed his way through. We don't know how it happened. But here's the reality. God got him out of there. You know why? Because he's going to die on a hill. He's just not going to die on that one. There's another hill calling his name. And he's got a mission to accomplish to get to that hill. So he's not going down this day. But all this, all this shows how ugly pride is. And our pride can be a barrier to belief in Christ because you either see a Savior you need to receive or a man you need to reject. When we talk about pride, I, I want to push it a little bit further here. I would say that even some of us in this room want Jesus dead. He's not dead. He's alive, just so you know. But you'd like him dead. You want him out of your life. Why? Because Jesus has this way of continuing to convict you of sin. Jesus continues to, to draw you to himself, and you run. You go, I just want you out of my life. Stop, would you stop having the Holy Spirit convict me of sin? Would you stop having the Holy Spirit telling me what I shouldn't do and what I should do? This is this like, you're, you're bothering me. And so you're like, I just want Jesus out. You're not going to throw him off a cliff. You'll choke him out by neglecting him. Yeah, I'm not going to try to throw Jesus off a cliff, but you know what? I'm not touching my Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to be in Christian community. I'm not going to talk to the Lord. I'm sure not going to tell anyone else about the Lord. And you just neglect him. You just hope he suffocates and just leaves your life. Or maybe it's mockery. When others in your life are talking about Christ or you're getting serious about God, you kind of poke at it and have fun. There's always a joke, but you don't get serious about the Lord. You're just killing him with humor, right? I just want him out. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's when your family or friends who do love Jesus and they're praying for you, it's like, don't pray for me. Or maybe when they're trying to share with you a truth from God's word, oh, you're a fan of them when you like what they're saying, but then when they get a little close to the Jesus thing, you're like, yeah, don't talk to me about that. I don't know how it is, but our pride will lead us to want Jesus out. This is a battle we can't win, guys. We have to humble ourselves and just open ourselves up to Christ. What happened at Nazareth shows us the reality of these two barriers to believing in Jesus, either being too familiar with him to see him for who he is or being too prideful for him that we can't see our own need for him. But don't forget, Jesus is still the Savior whether you reject him or receive him. It's just who he is. Have you received Christ as Savior? Have you come to that place where you can recognize your sin? And you can admit that to God and say, I'm sinful and I'm prideful and I'm broken and I need you. If you come to that place where you finally go, okay, I don't fully understand everything, but I understand that Jesus died on that cross as a sacrifice for my sinfulness, that he was put in a grave and on the third day rose again to demonstrate his authority and victory over death and sin. I could get it. 
And they come to a place where you just say, I believe it, and I'm going to commit my life to Jesus. I'm just going to follow him. Like, you can do that today. You, you tell the Lord that. You basically admit you're a sinner, believe in who he, Christ is and what he did, then commit your life to following him. That's, that's what it takes. And then just grow from there. So hopefully all of you know Jesus as Savior, but if not, you can today. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers, we are still susceptible to letting our pride and our familiarity with Jesus weaken our faith and weaken our commitment to live for Christ and to weaken living on mission for Christ. You know what encourages me about this? No one's ever tried to throw me off a cliff for telling them about Jesus. <laughs> like no one's ever tried to chuck me off a cliff. Hey, can I pray for you? That's it. You know, hey, can I tell you what God's done in my life? Uh uh, where's the next, where's the nearest cliff? It hasn't happened. We know we have brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries that to mention Jesus can cost them their life. It doesn't cost us our life, guys. It might cost us a little social awkwardness. Oh, that's terrible. It's awkward, you know. As long as we're not subscribing to the jerks for Jesus model (laughs) and we're just being loving and bold and faithful people, God's going to use you. God's going to use you. Like, okay, Jesus said to the people in Nazareth, the prophet's not welcome in his hometown. We understand the principle. Jesus is saying this is a principle. That usually the people closest to you are not going to receive you or the message you bring. But it's not always true. It was true in this case for Nazareth. It's true in a lot of cases, but it's not always true. And I want to, I want to take a poll here to help demonstrate this for a second. So uh, we're going to have a little exercise. You can loosen up a bit here. Uh, please raise your hand and keep them up. Don't put them down, okay? Raise your hand high if one of your parents led you to Christ, okay? So raise your hand high if a parent led you to Christ. Keep your hands up. We're going to add some hands. Raise your hand if maybe one of your children led you to the Lord, okay? Okay, how about another relative? Keep them up. Another relative led you to the Lord, okay? How about a coworker? okay? How about a close friend or a friend? Okay, there goes some hands. Yeah, absolutely. How about a neighbor, okay? I want you to just look around you with the hands. Look up in the balcony. Look down here. You can't look online, but okay, there's probably some hands out there. Look around. There are times when a prophet is very welcome in their hometown. You see what I'm saying? All of you came to Christ because somebody in proximity of you, close, led you to the Lord. You know what that means? Don't give up. Don't give up on the people that are close to you that don't know Christ. And one of the applications that we have here today, the first application is very clear. Keep, like if you don't know Christ, come to Christ. That's the first and most obvious application. Come to Christ if you don't know him. But if you know Christ, the second application is keep praying for the people that you know and love who don't. And here's two ways to pray. We've armed you with two ways to pray. Lord, don't let their familiarity with you shut you out. Don't let them be so familiar with church and whatever it is. That's blo- let them see you for who you are. Pray that for them. Secondly, you can pray, Lord, let them be humble. Break down their pride. God, would you give them humility so they can come to you in their humility? A lot of times we pray for the people who don't know Christ, but sometimes we get stuck like, well, how do I pray? Lord, let them not be so familiar. Let them not be too prideful. That's how we can pray for the people in our lives who don't know Christ. And that's what we're about to do. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Your word is so good, Lord. Your word is so good. It's truth and it's light and it's guidance and it's food and it's nourishment and it's fuel for our soul. 
God, we need your truth. God, I pray that all of us fight for that time in your word. I pray that all of us fight to talk to you, to listen to you, to spend time with you. With my brothers and sisters here, we confess. We, we, we lay before you that some of us here have become so familiar with our Savior that we're not really walking strong. And we're not telling others about you. Lord, would you forgive us, please? God, let our, let our familiarity with you be a joy. May we love becoming even more and more and more familiar with our Jesus. And let that translate into holiness in our life. And let that translate to us being your salt and light and your advocates as we walk through this world. And Lord, we confess also that our pride has gotten in the way. Father, forgive us of our pride and how we can even spiritualize our pride as believers. We can slap a Bible verse on it or, or do something that makes it sound like it's right. Lord, we need you. We shout it, proclaim it right now. Jesus, we need you. We're broken. We're hideous without you. So please do your transforming work on a daily basis in our life. Lord, right now we want to pray for moms and dads and brothers and sisters and daughters and sons and friends and neighbors and coworkers. We want to lift up some names right now to you, Lord, of people that we know need you so bad. And right now, I just want to give you a minute. Would you pray for someone specific, and would you pray these two things for them? Would you pray that they aren't so familiar with Jesus, that they've heard his name so much that they won't come to faith? And would you pray that God would give them humility and resist their pride so they would come to him? Would you just take a minute and pray those two things for someone on your heart right now? And Father, I come to you right now with anyone in this room or online that doesn't know you as Savior. And if that's you, and you've never given your life to Christ, Today's the day you can cross that threshold of faith. Right now, would you just admit that you're a sinner to God? Just tell him in your own heart, in your own words. Tell him, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm broken. I'm prideful. Tell him that you believe. That today you believe in Jesus as your Savior. That you believe he died on the cross. You believe he rose from the grave. Would you tell him today that you commit yourself to following him all the days of your life? Lord, we lift these prayers up to you. We lay them at your throne, at your feet. In the name of Jesus, we all say together, amen. Before we close, if today you came to Christ, today's the day that you stepped into that relationship with Jesus, we want to celebrate with you. We want to stand with you and help you grow. In your program, there's a response here that says, today I'm placing my faith in Jesus. Would you just mark that? And then would you just rip this? off here. In a couple minutes, there's going to be some baskets that come around. Would you just place that in the baskets? Just kind of your declaration of faith. And then put an email or a phone number on there. And we're just going to get in touch with you, give you some resources, tell you how to grow in this relationship. Everybody, let's just stand and let's just worship our Savior.